Welcome to your weekly Come Follow Me with David Ridges podcast. My name is Ari Vandegraaff, and I am your guest host this week. I'm the author of the Scripture Power Activity Book. I also publish two comic strips every week, celebrating the Latter-day Saint culture on my website, wardcartoonist.com. On that website, I take a peculiar view of a peculiar people. Being a cartoonist colors the way I look at the church, and while I might gently tease our culture, I absolutely cherish our religion, especially the keystone of that religion, the Book of Mormon. There is a phrase unique to the scriptures in the Book of Mormon that Alma the Younger uses to describe the gospel, the great plan of happiness. He's right. I'm convinced that there is no other group of people in the world who should be happier than members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Not only do we have a clear understanding of the rich blessings in store for those who choose to follow Christ in this life, but we also know that God has not cast off anyone who has not yet come to the conclusion that Christ is their Savior. He'll work with us, our loved ones, the entire human race, well beyond the end of our mortal lives. This is why I draw cartoons about our culture. I want to celebrate the joy that comes from our message. I like what Chieko Okazaki said. Sometimes people confuse spirituality with solemnity. It's been my experience that one of the inevitable effects of true spirituality is light-heartedness, a generosity and happiness. Joy is even more contagious than chicken pox. If you knew that every Sunday you were going to be bathed in the radiance of testimony of the Savior, could wild horses keep you away from church? Hardly. This week's lesson is a joyous one, although it doesn't start out as such. Stick with it, though. It's worth your time. Helaman chapters 1-6 through six has a little bit of everything. Palace intrigue, bloody battles, secret agents and secret combinations, and about the most remarkable missionary story in all of Scripture. These six chapters cover 28 years of Nephite and Lamanite history. In abridging the chapters, Mormon draws upon the writings of Helaman, the son of the prophet and general who led the stripling warriors, and his son Nephi. The book begins with the death of Pohoran, the chief judge whose service corresponded with the war chapters that introduced readers to such heroes as Captain Moroni and the already mentioned stripling warriors. As modern-day readers of the Book of Mormon, I think we tend to project the Nephite rule of judges established by righteous King Mosiah as being more similar to current forms of government than it probably was. Consider this. The first seven chief judges, whose service consisted of just over 60 years, came from just two families. In a lot of ways, the chief judges were a lot more like kings, given the nature of the Nephite government and how in many ways it still resembled a monarchy, where the right to rule was often passed from father to son. It isn't too surprising that at Pahoran's death, the people limited their choice of replacement to three of Pahoran's sons, Pahoran, Payanki, and Pakumani. When the votes are tallied, Pahoran II is appointed by the voice of the people to be chief judge and governor over the people of Nephi. Pakumani, recognizing the fact that he lost the vote, relents and offers his support to his brother. But Payanki was exceedingly wroth and begins to conspire to overthrow the government. Before he is able to commit his vile act, however, Payanki is taken by the people, tried for his crime, and executed. Unfortunately, Payanki's death does not put an end to the civil rest roiling the Nephite nation. A group of his supporters, 
unhappy with Pianchi's end, conspire to murder the chief judge, Pianchi's brother Pahoran. Originally led by Kishkaman and later by Gadianton, this group would soon take up the name Gadianton Robbers and cause all sorts of mischief throughout the remainder of the Book of Mormon through their secret combinations and actions. In Helaman chapter 1 verse 9, we learn that Kishkaman is successful in his plot to kill the chief judge. Pahoran is murdered on the judgment seat, and Kishkaman escapes, where he returns to his co-conspirators. Unfortunately, the political unrest doesn't slow down. After the last brother's standing, Pakumanai takes up the judgment seat. That's because shortly after Pakumanai's appointment to the judgment seat, the Lamanites, led by a gutsy general named Coriantumr, once again attack the Nephite nation. Only this time, the Lamanites attack the very heart of the Nephite nation, invading Zarahemla, the Nephite capital, before a sufficient Nephi army could be assembled to repel the invading Lamanites. Poor Pacumani meets the same fate of his two deceased brothers when, in Mormon's word, Coriantumr did smite him against the wall, insomuch that he died, and thus ended the days of Pacumani. Incidentally, I'd place a description of Pacumani's death second only to Shiz from Ether chapter 15, as far as memorable demises in the Book of Mormon. In short order, the Lamanite army is defeated. But once again, for the third time in two years, the judgment seat is vacant. And with seemingly no more of Pahoran's children interested in the job, and honestly, at this point, who could blame them? The Nephite nation turns to Helaman II to fill the judgment seat. Helaman is a grandson of Alma the Younger, the nation's first chief judge, and the son of Alma's oldest son, Helaman. A few years before taking on the role of chief judge, Helaman had taken over the responsibility for keeping the Nephite record from his uncle. He's got a lot on his plate. He assumed leadership over the government during a time of political uncertainty. Kishkaman and his band of robbers, now led by Gadianton, are once again plotting to overthrow the government with another political assassination, and this time Helaman is in their sights. Fortunately for Helaman, he's got good help. Described by Mormon only as one of the servants of Helaman, an intrepid Nephite patriot infiltrates Gadianton's band while in disguise and learns of their plot to kill Helaman. With this knowledge, this brave soul, let's call him James Bondianton, intercepts Kishkaman, confirms that Kishkaman is plotting to kill Helaman, earns Kishkaman's trust, and then stabs the would-be assassin in the heart killing him instantly. Alas, Gadianton and his band of robbers make a quick getaway, avoiding capture from the government. They disappear among the people while continuing to plot mischief. Mormon leaves the story with this ominous warning. And more of this Gadianton shall be spoken hereafter. And behold, in the end of this book, ye shall see that Gadianton did prove the overthrow, yea, almost the entire destruction of the people of Nephi. Behold, I do not mean the end of the book of Helaman, but I mean the end of the book of Nephi, from which I have taken all the account which I have written. We'll see more of Gadiant and Robbers in future podcasts. For the next ten years, Helaman guides his people successfully through some interesting times. There is a great migration of Nephites and the people of Ammon to the north. There were wars and contentions. But towards the end of Helaman's service, the people began to greatly prosper. 
Perhaps this is due to Helaman's character. As Mormon puts it, Helaman did fill the judgment seat with justice and equity. Yea, he did observe to keep the statutes and the judgments and the commandments of God, and he did do that which was right in the sight of God continually. And he did walk after the ways of his father, insomuch that he did prosper in the land. Not only are the people prospering, but the church is too. During this time, Mormon records that tens of thousands joined the church, insomuch that the high priests and the teachers were themselves astonished beyond measure. What accounts for this great prosperity? Mormon offers three, and thus we seize in the way of an answer. Starting in Helaman chapter 3, verse 27, and continuing through verse 30. Thus we may see that the Lord is merciful unto all who will, in the sincerity of their hearts, call upon his holy name. Yea, thus we see that the gate of heaven is open unto all, even to those who will believe on the name of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. Yea, we see that whosoever will may hold upon the word of God, which is quick and powerful, which shall divide asunder all the cunnings and the snares and the wiles of the devil, and lead the man of Christ in a straight and narrow course across that everlasting gulf of misery which is prepared to engulf the wicked, and land their souls, yea, their immortal souls, at the right hand of God in the kingdom of heaven, to sit down with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob and with all our holy fathers to go no more out. Unfortunately, the good times don't last. Toward the end of Helaman's life, his people began exhibiting exceedingly great pride, and it was because of their exceedingly great riches and their prosperity in the land, and it did grow upon them from day to day. Based on that verse, is it any wonder that the Nephite nation is about to go for another spin through the pride cycle? Okay, really quick. Let's pause and make sure everyone knows what the pride cycle is. One of the things that really sets the Book of Mormon apart from the Bible is the steady hand of Mormon, who carefully compiled and abridged a thousand years of Nephite history. In doing so, Mormon identified a number of patterns he saw through his study of his people's history and made sure to highlight those patterns for us. One prominent pattern Mormon highlights again and again is the pride cycle. This is where the Nephites, and occasionally Lamanites, are blessed for their righteousness. The prosperity from their righteousness leads to pride, which leads to wickedness, which leads to destruction and suffering, which leads to humility and repentance, which once again leads to righteousness. The cycle shows up several times in Mormon's abridgment, and even more times, and in a much more rapid succession, in Moroni's abridgment of the Jaredite people. While Mormon and Moroni highlight how the pride cycle impacts nations, in our study, it is more important to recognize the cycle in individual lives. I used to read about Laman and Lemuel, or the Jaredites in the book of Ether, or the Nephites in the book of Helaman, and scoff at how unstable they were. In one verse, they were humbly entreating the Lord, and yet, a couple of verses later, they were rejecting his messengers. What I've since realized is that embedded in those short passages is often a period of several years. While it is true that Laman and Lemuel saw an angel, heard the voice of the Lord, and were delivered from a dangerous storm on the sea after untying their little brother, there were years in between these experiences, plenty of time to forget lessons they had earlier learned. How often do we forget our own powerful experiences with the Spirit? How often does the Lord need to gently 
or sometimes not so gently, nudge us back onto the path. We'd be wise to pay attention to the lessons Mormon and Moroni teach us about the Pride Cycle in the Book of Mormon, and try hard to avoid the pitfalls they highlight. As Moroni so eloquently puts it, Give thanks unto God that he hath made manifest unto you our imperfections, that ye may learn to be more wise than we have been. Alright, back to the text. At the beginning of Helaman chapter 4, there are some ominous clouds facing the Nephite nation. As we've previously read, the people's pride did grow upon them from day to day. Helaman passed away, and in his place his son Nephi took the mantle of chief judge. Almost immediately, Nephi is dealing with problems associated with the growing pride in the nation. Contention breaks out among the people. Soon, the contention leads to bloodshed, and Nephite dissenters are joining the Lamanites. Four years into Nephi's term, the Lamanites, along with those Nephite dissenters, attack the Nephite nation, resulting in horrific devastation. Most Nephite lands fall into Lamanite control, including the capital city of Zarahemla. Over the course of the next four years, the Nephite army battles the Lamanites for control of those lands lost, only to succeed in reclaiming half the land. At last, the Nephite army abandons its design to reclaim any more Nephite cities. Among the lost land is Zarahemla, the center of the Nephite civilization and government. It is at this time that Nephi advocates the judgment seat. In my reading of Helaman, I'm not clear if Nephi does so willingly or due to a vote of the people. In the verse immediately following Mormon's explanation that Nephi was delivering the judgment seat, he pointedly observes that, For as their laws and their governments were established by the voice of the people, and they who chose evil were more numerous than those who chose good, therefore they were ripened for destruction, for the laws had become corrupted. Now, please, Take another detour with me and consider the history of the large plates of Nephi, from which Mormon abridged the majority of the Book of Mormon. In the beginning, Nephi, the original of I Will Go and Do fame, intended that his large plates would be passed down from Nephi ruler to Nephi ruler. This was a practice for over 500 years, and is the reason, one would assume, that King Mosiah gave the plates to Alma the Younger and not one of his sons. Remember, that Alma became the first chief judge at Mosiah's passing. Things changed with Alma, though. From Alma forward, the records were transferred from leader of the church to leader of the church, not from political leader to political leader. Alma chapter 50, verses 37 through 38, offers a clue as to why. And it came to pass that in the same year that the people of Nephi had peace restored unto them, that Nephihah, the second chief judge, died, having filled the judgment seat with perfect uprightness before God. Nevertheless, he had refused Alma to take possession of those records and those things which were esteemed by Alma and his fathers to be most sacred. Therefore, Alma had conferred them upon his son Helaman. When Alma relinquished the position of chief judge and Nephiah took the position, Nephiah either then or towards the end of Alma's life declined custodianship of the plates. Alma instead passed the plates on to his son Helaman, who was the next leader of the church. I have often wondered what would have happened had Nephiah insisted on taking the plates. Clearly he was inspired not to, because within forty years of his reign, 
the Nephites elected a wicked man to the judgment seat. I wonder what would have happened to the records had that man, and the numerous other wicked judges that followed him, kept the large plates of Nephi. Would Mormon have had a record to abridge? Nephi's action, every bit as much as Mormon's inspiration to include the small plates with the gold plates, likely ensured that the marvelous work and wonder that is the Book of Mormon would be available to us today. And we're back. Nephi has just surrendered the judgment seat, which, it would turn out, was a huge blessing to both the Nephites and the Lamanites. Reminiscent of a truth Mormon offered in another section of the Book of Mormon, that the preaching of the word had a great tendency to lead the people to do that which is just. Yea, it had more powerful effect upon the minds of the people than the sword or anything else which had happened unto them. Nephi, along with his brother Lehi, turned their efforts to the word of God. The missionary efforts of Nephi and Lehi, first among the Nephites and then among the Lamanites, are legendary. But before we get to their exploits, let's consider some of the counsel their father gave them long before their missionary service. Among the descendants of Alma, we know very little about Helaman II. We know he received his charge to keep the records from his father's brother shortly before he was pressed into service as a chief judge. We know he sat in judgment during a relatively prosperous period of Nephite history. And we have a record of the tender counsel he gave his sons Nephi and Lehi. First, those names. Helaman told his boys, Behold, I have given unto you the names of our first parents, who came out of the land of Jerusalem. And this I have done, that when you remember your names, you may remember them. And when you remember them, you may remember their works. And when you remember their works, ye may know how it was said, and also written, that they were good. Therefore, my sons, I would that ye should do that which is good that it may be said of you, and also written, even as it has been said and written of them. Helaman then urges his sons to remember the teachings of Nephite prophets of old concerning Jesus Christ and his atonement. He then concludes his counsel with this powerful thought, one that has been taped upon many a Latter-day Saint mirror. And now, my sons, remember, remember, that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that ye must build your foundation, that when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, yea, his shafts in the whirlwind, yea, when all his hell and his mighty storm shall beat upon you, it shall have no power over you to drag you down to the gulf of misery and endless woe, because of the rock upon which you are built, which is a sure foundation, a foundation whereon, if men build, they cannot fall. In the seven verses that include Helaman's counsel to his sons, the word remember is repeated 13 times. President Spencer W. Kimball spoke of the importance of the word remember. When you look in the dictionary for the most important word, do you know what it is? It could be remember. Because all of you have made covenants, you know what to do and you know how to do it. Our greatest need is to remember. That is why everyone goes to sacrament meeting every Sabbath day, to take the sacrament and to listen to the priest pray that they may always remember him and keep his commandments, which he has given them. Nobody should ever forget to go to sacrament meeting. Remember is the word. Remember is the program. And what did Nephi and Lehi think of their father's counsel? Mormon simply states, 
and they did remember his words. Nephi and Lehi begin their mission among the Nephites, encouraging a now humbled people to turn to the Lord. They then moved among the Lamanites inhabiting the land of Zarahemla, where they taught with such great power and authority that there were 8,000 Lamanites baptized. Only the brothers were just getting started. From Zarahemla they traveled into the land of Nephi, into the very heart of the Lamanite nation. There an army of Lamanites took the brothers and tossed them into a prison. Little did those Lamanite soldiers know that that prison would soon become the site of a miracle that would shape the Lamanite nation for generations. After many days, a large body of Lamanites entered the prison with the intent of slaying Nephi and Lehi. Instead, the brothers were encircled by a heavenly fire that did not burn them. The experience shocked the Lamanite aggressors to their core, but the miracle didn't end there. Soon the earth quaked, a cloud of darkness descended upon them, and the multitude heard the voice of the Lord. After all of this, and thanks to some instruction from a Nephite dissenter who had previously been taught the gospel, the multitude called upon the Lord for forgiveness. At the risk of spoiling the flow of this great story, can I just take a minute to talk about the Nephite dissenter who pointed the Lamanites into the prison toward the Lord? His name was Aminadab, and when the Lamanites asked him what they should do, he directed them to cry unto the Lord and have faith in Christ, who was taught unto you by Alma and Amulek and Zeezrom. It's great counsel. The only thing is, we have no record of Alma, Amulek, or Zeezrom ever preaching to the Lamanites. Either Aminadab is recounting some event that isn't included in the Book of Mormon, or, more likely, he is confusing Alma, Amulek, and Zeezrom with their contemporaries, Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and Himni. Maybe if he'd paid better attention in Sunday school, Aminadab never would have dissented. All right, where were we? Ah, yes. The Lamanites in the prison with Nephi and Lehi called upon the Lord for forgiveness. In answer to their pleadings, the multitude was encircled by the same heavenly fires that encompassed Nephi and Lehi visited by the Holy Ghost and ministered to by the same prophet brothers that they were only moments earlier bent on killing. These Lamanites would then go forth among the people and, with Nephi and Lehi, convert nearly the entire Lamanite nation. After their conversion, the Lamanites yielded up the lands they had recently conquered from the Nephites back to the Nephites, and in a very short time, the Lamanites would become more righteous than the Nephites. The experience in that jail was so remarkable that Christ himself would reference it a half-century later when he spoke to the Nephites from the darkness in the days after his crucifixion. About 120 years prior to this remarkable experience, another prophet was thrown into very likely the same prison. Abinadi was commanded to preach repentance to King Noah and his people. Only his experience in that place was far different than Nephi and Lehi's experience. Abinadi was imprisoned, tried by Noah's wicked judges, and sentenced to death. For all Abinadi's efforts, we have record of only one convert. We can only wonder if Abinadi spent his last days of immortality housed in his prison, even aware of Alma's conversion. Whether he knew of Alma's change of heart or not, it is very unlikely he could have guessed the lasting impact Alma's conversion would have on Nephite and Lamanite history. Alma would start a church first at the Waters of Mormon, 
and later in the land of Zarahemla. And his posterity would lead that church up until the time of Christ's visit to the New World and beyond. Included in Alma's posterity are the very prophets who were imprisoned in the same prison as Abinadi, Nephi, and Lehi. I want to end this podcast with the image of Nephi and Lehi in that prison, the same one that that Abinadi suffered in. And with this thought, one never knows the full extent of his or her righteous efforts. Abinadi might have looked at his efforts as a failure, but we can easily tie his ministry to that of Nephi and Lehi's. Indeed, Abinadi shaped the history of the Nephite and Lamanite nation for centuries. A very special experience in my family history highlights the same principle. It involves my dad and the high school teacher who changed the course of his life. My dad had a difficult childhood. By the time he was in high school, he had lost both of his parents. During his senior year of high school, he was pretty much drifting through school. Graduation wasn't much of a priority. There were two things that he was passionate about, wrestling on the high school wrestling team and a biology class taught by Leroy Bailey. Once wrestling season ended, Dad was only attending school for his biology class. Fortunately for Dad, his biology teacher was someone special. As his homeroom teacher, Mr. Bailey noticed that my dad's attendance was spotty outside of biology. He spoke to Dad on several occasions and encouraged him to make better efforts in his studies. These pep talks were met with indifference from my dad. Then, one day, Mr. Bailey invited Dad into his office. He told him about an essay contest the local Kiwanis Club was sponsoring, where they would be selecting one student from each local high school to receive a scholarship to Weber State College. Mr. Bailey wanted my dad to enter the essay contest. Reluctantly, dad agreed. Mr. Bailey then opened up several books to marked pages and told him what his essay should be about. After writing what was undoubtedly a pretty shoddy essay, dad put the whole thing out of his mind. There were other students who would certainly write a better essay. A few weeks later, however, my dad was surprised to hear his name announced over the intercom as the winner of a Weber State scholarship courtesy of the Kiwanis Club. Things changed for Dad after that. Realizing that he was going to be attending college after high school, Dad got serious about his studies. He figured, you know, he'd better graduate. A short time later, the Kiwanis Club held a banquet for all the scholarship recipients from the high schools. At the banquet, my dad sat at a table with one of the judges. The judge told him an interesting thing. He said that from every high school, there were dozens of essays to pick from. Except Weber High. Weber High only produced one essay, my dad's. It was then that it dawned on dad what Mr. Bailey had done. Mr. Bailey was in charge of disseminating the essay contest throughout the school and only told my dad about it thus ensuring that he would receive the scholarship. What Mr. Bailey saw in my dad, I don't know, but I am so grateful that he took an interest in that seemingly lost young man. Not only did my dad graduate high school, he also graduated from Weber State College, where he met his wife. He then went on to graduate school, eventually earning a Ph.D. in zoology. As a Ph.D., Dad influenced countless students as an award-winning professor at BYU and Weber State. Primarily, though, his family of six children felt his influence, and all of that was possible due to the good works of a high school biology teacher. 
As we consider the messages from this week's Come Follow Me lesson, I hope we'll remember Helaman and his righteous example to his sons. I hope we'll remember to learn from the mistakes of the Nephites and step off our own personal pride cycles. And I hope we'll remember the powerful influence we can have in the lives of those around us. I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more Come Follow Me teaching materials, visit cedarfort.com. Use code CFPODCAST to save 15% on your entire order. That's C as in Cedar and F as in Fort, podcast, for 15% off your entire order.